for the final time in 2019, we think. This is the You Can Take Me Now, I Have Seen It All podcast. I am Matt Russell, flying solo in the podcast room here. Lara Pitts are coming to a dodgy Asian cuisine and joining us all the way from the Sunshine State, enjoying pineapples and bananas up north. Warren Smith, hello to you. G'day, Matty. I'm ensconced somewhere on the Gold Coast. I can't reveal my very secret location. And uh, it's a beautiful, warm day. I'm as perfect one day and beautiful the next, whatever else. So uh, we'll see how we travel up here on the Gold Coast. But can I just tell you, right off the top, and it's always the case off the back of the grand final, but I'm suffering from the melancholy of all things completed, as they say in the classics, is that sort of that lull off the back of the grand final where it, you the realisation that it's all come to a crashing end. It's like, well, where do we get our footy fixed now? But in reality, we're not that far away from the World Nines next week and then we've got some test matches after that. So there's a lot more footy still to come. But, um, yeah, the end of the grand final, the end of the NRL season is always a, I don't know, a sombre couple of days off the back of it, isn't it? The holiday Monday, we should be celebrating that was, but on the same, flat, flat and flat after a gripping, fantastic, epic grand final. Luckily, we do have the World Nines and these post-season tests to look forward to, but I was in a whole holiday Monday and it's taking a few days to lift myself out of that. Uh, Lara Pitt is in a hole this morning. Uh, was we joke about Lara's Macca's consumption, she should have stuck with Macca's because... Uh, Sadly, she deviated, went down an Asian line and uh, isn't feeling the best this morning. Right through the NRL finals, though, this podcast is brought to you by the fantastic people at Macca's and the Monopoly game at Macca's. You can peel your way to over 69 million prizes. Am I going too far to suggest that you've already found your way into a Macca's or two as you made the trek north was? Look, as we uh, wild away a half an hour or so before our flight to the Gold Coast yesterday... The kids did partake and they were peeling. And I said, do you know, there are 69 million prizes up for grabs. And uh, I can't, my daughter, I think, peeled off one. She got a free, a month's free subscription to a, a news uh, website. So she's delighted with that. And she's going to be using that for the next four weeks free. Just absolutely delirious to get a free website subscription for a month. Was it TMZ or one of those US entertainment websites? I don't know. I said, that's fantastic, honey. You've done well. All the best to you. Was we should um, speak that. footy. And you were lucky enough to be in the commentary box for a great grand final alongside Greg Alexander and Blocker Roach. Through your eyes, give us your overarching assessment of grand final 2019. Well, I've got to say, there is no doubt, and if I'm, I've been a little bit flat over the last couple of days, I guess maybe part of that is due to the circumstances surrounding the grand final and the way it played out. And while I think the Roosters were the best team, well, I know the Melbourne Storm won the minor premiership, but the Roosters, you always had that inclination that they were going to be very tough to beat should they make the grand final. And we know they did um, fairly comfortably in the end, a tight sort of preliminary final win over the Melbourne Storm. Um, but if that, you know, if people had the idea that that was the grand final the week before between the Roosters and the Storm, well, they were sadly mistaken because it was a tremendous grand final. Controversy aside, it was a fantastic game or a gripping game of rugby league. It wasn't flowing and open, but I don't think it was ever going to be that style of game. And um, and the Roosters, in key moments, did what they do. They stood tallest when there were chances to be taken. 
And if rugby league is a, a game of chances created and chances taken, well, the, the Roosters had a couple of chances and they capitalised off both of them. Um, that's the only way you can really put it. The, the first chance they got was off the back of, you know, the Luke Keary kick comes off the head of Sia Soliola into the Roosters trainer, Travis Toomer. And unfortunately, the moment it happens, you think, well, the, the Raiders are pretty stiff here because they were looking likely they were going to get possession and have it in, in pretty good field position. I don't know that Elliot Whitehead was going to scream away and score a try. But from the very beginning of that game, it was a bizarre set of circumstances that led to those chances for the, the Roosters because I, I don't remember the last time I actually saw a ball hit a trainer. Can you? I can't remember it. And that's why the issue isn't necessarily the rule, this archaic rule that sees the team in the attacking half get the ball back. It's the time that the trainers spend on the field and that is going to be reviewed in the off-season. And as someone who sits sideline week in, week out, I see the amount of traffic but the train is on and off. It's a constant flow and it's a bugbear for viewers at the ground and watching on television. So if if there's refinement to the amount of time that trainers spend on the field in the off-season, then ultimately that will be a good thing through my eyes. And from what I can gather, it seems like Todd Greenberg is in complete uh, agreement with that. And I mean, it's not, it's not junior footy. I mean, the players don't need to be told where to stand and who's going to get the ball and all the things you associate with kids playing mini and mod league. It's the NRL, for goodness sake. Uh, this has been going on for far too long, and I, I, I don't know any fan who thinks trainers on the field is a good thing, and especially when the game is three minutes old. But that's uh, the way the game has gone, and coaches have been able to get away with it, having trainers out there as, a, as another set of eyes, almost as like a second fullback, um, playing the role of Billy Slater or other great fullbacks directing the attack. It's it's ridiculous that we've got to that stage that a situation could evolve in a grand final where a trainer gets involved in the play. And truth be told, I think that was a bigger situation, a more impactful situation than the six-again, non-six-again call by Ben Cummins later in the game, which led to the change of possession and the, and the Tedesco try. I think that the initial situation with that Travis Toomer incident with a ball coming off Soliola's head into him. I think that was a more impactful situation. It hasn't been forgotten about, but it's almost it's been lost in the wake of the, the drama surrounding the, the six-again call. It's a fair argument because there's a strong argument that Elliot Whitehead would have scored. So there's potentially six points to the Raiders and importantly, the first six points of the game to the Raiders. Everyone, the experts were saying that the Raiders need to start well. They can't afford to give the Roosters, the first try of the game and be playing catch-up early on, well, that would have achieved both of those aims, given a buffer to the Raiders early but deprived the Roosters of the lead. So it's a fair argument was that that, in fact, was bigger than the controversy surrounding the sin bin or the the epicentre of the controversy, the uh, the six-again ruling, which we will get to. But I just want to have my say on the Roosters was, and you can come in off the back of it, because uh, really... Uh, because of the controversy, has the Roosters' performance received the praise it warranted? Maybe not, given they lost Mitch Orbison early. They lost Cooper Cronk for 10 minutes. They had significantly less than 50% of possession. They were out-tackled in terms of tackled in the op- opposition half, 73-56. Offloads 20-1 to against. 
yet they tackle their hearts out. They show us why they're one of the best defensive teams in the league and they climb a mountain that hadn't been climbed for 26 years, back-to-back premierships. It was a Herculean performance and, you know, you wake up Monday morning, you ask yourself, did the best team win the grand final? Did the most deserving team win the grand final? The answer in my eyes is still yes. Oh, yes, and I'm, I'm very much in that category. Um, and in doing the prep for the game, you know, you go back through the past couple of final series and now they've gone back-to-back uh, to be the first team to do it in 26 seasons, which is remarkable in itself. But the Roosters going into the grand final had conceded 6.8 points per game in the last two final series. Three games last year, two games leading into the grand final. That's a ridiculously small number, isn't it? And and off the back of um, the Canberra Raiders scoring eight points in the grand final, that number is now seven. So in the last two final series, the Roosters have conceded a an average of seven points per game against the best teams in the competition. This isn't isn't racked up against teams 14, 15, 16. Against the best teams in the comp over the past two years, they've only given up seven points per game. That that is a ridiculously small number. So you basically got to keep the Roosters trialless in the finals over the last two years to beat them. That's what those stats say. Yeah, pretty much, don't you? I mean, if they score two tries, they win. The numbers tell you... They win, uh, and they scored two tries. You can argue the toss, of course, about the, the change of possession. We've already mentioned that one in particular with the trainer getting involved. But still, again, and I suggested this, I guess, on Twitter um, off the back of the grand final on Sunday night, that you know nothing is terminal. Sure, things happen, and you get bad calls through games all the way through the season, but nothing is terminal, especially when it's three minutes into the game. And the Sam Verrill's first try, off the back of that change of possession, the Roosters come down, they get a repeat set off a goal line dropout, and then Sam Verrill's eventually dives in on the last tackle from close range. But the market defence from Canberra, and they had two huge lapses in market defence, and on both situ- situations, the Roosters scored tries. Verrill's jumps out from dummy half. Uh, Joe Tarpany has got his back turned to the play three metres out from his own line. I don't know what was happening there. I don't know what he was thinking, that he could turn his back and coast back towards the line and then turn around. So, that was that was bizarre. I, I see Asoliola had a part to play in that situation as well as he peeled away from it and they just, they just lost their jobs there badly. They would love that moment back if they could get it. And then we had the same situation on the James Tedesco try where... Um, Joey Leilua makes a legs tackle on Boyd Cordner and there's no marker and Luke Keary can jump out and do what he does to send them away and Tedesco scores off the back of it. So while they had things go against them, those two lapses were, they were terminal in in, in respect. But at the, at the time, those mistakes, they're not terminal as far as the changes of possession. They what cost a- them the grand final, but... It, it, it couldn't have, it shouldn't have been that way. It didn't have to be that way. What about the season for Sam Verrills? At the start of the year, I wonder how much first grade rugby league he really expected to play this season. Here he is, 14 games into his NRL career. He's starting in a grand final. He's scoring in a grand final. He's finishing with a premiership ring. Uh, it is one of the great stories for 2019. There are many, but Sammy Verrills certainly has one. Yeah, I don't know how many uh, roosters over the years... Um, who won a premiership have come from like the deep northern beaches of Sydney up there on the peninsula. He's an Avalon bulldog, 
well known as a junior coming through the grades up there. Um, somehow slipped through the net, I guess, of the Manly Seagulls, ends up as a rooster. And, uh, boy, I mean, it's a fantastic story, as you say. Played pretty much the entire second half of the season once he got his chance earlier in the season to fill in in round six against the Melbourne Storm, no less. Um, but then with Jake Friend's issues, um, plays a terrific role for them during the second half of the season. And it was a bit of a gamble, well, a gamble in some ways to carry Jake Friend on the bench, depending on how things panned out with injuries. And when Mitch Orbison went down, you sort of, you were wondering, boy, this call to have, you know, the two hookers in the side um, and two dedicated hookers in the side, uh, how would that would, you know, maybe come back to bite Trent Robinson and the Roosters? Uh, in the end, it didn't. And they and they just love Jake Friend. He is the golden child in a lot of ways at the Roosters for the what he's been able to do and, and turn himself around from his off-field issues that he had earlier in his career um, to really knuckle down and become, as I said in the in the game, the, one of the, the bedrocks of this Roosters uh, club, um, you know, to be able to play a role off the bench in, in backing up Sam Verrills. It was a, a nice one-two punch for Trent Robinson, as it turned out, but, yeah, Verrills was terrific. And then their other try, of course, uh, which has to have the backstory to it painted. I've mentioned how they had to dig in so much, the Roosters, and handle the momentum that was building for Canberra. They do that, and then they get the opportunity, a blink-of-the-eye moment, and it's Latrell Mitchell, one of the stars this season, with that remarkable flick to free up the Dallier medalist Tedesco to score what turned out to be the match winner. Uh, it is a great performance by a team that gets its chance and seizes it, and I thought it was... Uh, reflective of 2019 that two of the stars of the game combined so brilliantly on that uh, left edge for for the Roosters. And it begins, as I mentioned, uh, you know, with the Boyd Cordner run and gets a legs tackle from Joey Leilua. So you've got, you know, the New South Wales captain on that left-hand side has now gone back-to-back with the New South Wales State of Origin side. He's gone back-to-back with the Roosters. He supplies one of those trademark runs on the left edge, gets a legs tackle, a quick play of the ball. Keary jumps out from dummy half to Mitchell, then to Tupo. The pass was fantastic from Latrell Mitchell. And, of course, James Tedesco is backing up through the middle. And, and it's, you know, that's been that left edge for a couple of seasons now, quite obviously, hasn't it? Keary and Cordner and Mitchell and Tupo and Tedesco chiming in. And that was, in a lot of ways, the quintessential Roosters try. And if they were going to win the grand final, you'd have said it would be something like that on the left edge. That's exactly the way it played out. That's quite remarkable. Was uh, We've spoken about the trainer on the field. The other controversial moments, let's start with the Cooper Cronk Sinbin. Through my eyes, I, I reckon we might be about to butt heads here. Through my eyes, I thought it was the right call. When I saw it happened in live play, I straight away thought, late tackle. Um, I looked at the Raiders around the incident and they all raise their arms straight away and if we're being consistent if we're following what's happened this season try scoring opportunity player tackled without the ball that equals professional foul I thought he was going to go the moment he made the tackle Cooper Cronk what about you with the microphone in front of the mouth no well I was complete the other way and and so was Greg Alexander to maybe (laughs) an extreme extent and Steve Roach certainly didn't think it was a, a sin and my reasoning is this um, there's been a bit of a move towards, I guess, looking at situations like that as professional fouls just in recent times because we've, in the referee's eyes, and, and of course they're trying to you know, stop these cynical professional fouls wherever they can in try scoring situations. 
But I think the key word there is is the cynical nature of it, the cynicism. And I don't think there was any any cynicism in what uh, Cooper Cronk was trying to do. I, I, he was just coming out to make a tackle on a big man. He's a halfback. He's got to tackle a front rower, perhaps at this point in time, the most damaging front rower in the game. And it's, it's a situation on his own line. He has to make that stop. And he, got, and he knows he has to get out and get up in his face. And I think he got the timing wrong, but I don't think there was any cynicism involved in it. It's not like a situation where a winger makes a long break and he's tackled 15 metres out and the fullback hangs on, hangs on and hangs on and purposely gives away a penalty. I think it's a vastly different situation to that. And I think if that's the new standard for what is a professional foul on your own line, because by definition, if you're on your own line, then every play is a potential try-scoring play for the opposition. I think we'll see a ton more players go to the sin bin if that's the case. And they might be all for situations like that. But if you jump offside on your own line and and the, you, know, you get involved in the play in some ways or you make a tackle... Well, you could you could say the same thing. That's a professional foul because it was a try-scoring situation. We we could have players going to the sin bin left, right, and centre, and maybe that's not a bad thing. But I think that was out of kilter with what has been the interpretation of a professional foul for some time. The game craves black and white. What happens if Cooper Cronk arrives another second behind where he did the other day, or, or sorry, a second earlier? You know, I'm just wondering where we draw the line in that situation going forward. If we don't sin bin Cooper there because it's touch and go and there's going to be any number of sin binnings if that's the rule, I just wonder, do we not say we try and get black and white or where's the line then? How early can you be in a tackle in terms of not being sin binned as opposed to being marched? Yeah, well, I guess it's, you know, in the eye of the beholder. The referees. We burden yeah, and them with and, more. And that, that's Well, exactly right. We've loaded them up with everything. So um, I sort of think you'd, Again, it's one of those situations, to my way of thinking, that you know it when you see it. If he comes out and he, he smashes him, you know, as the ball is leaving the passer's hands and he's there ridiculously early, then that's that, that for mine, yeah, I'd say, look, no trouble. He just came out, wanted to give away a penalty because he knew he was under the pump. But I think it was one of those situations where, you know, the ball... I, don't, I haven't timed it, and we've been through this situation, I guess, earlier in the season. We were talking about, you know, players getting to tackles late and being sin binned, and then, you know, um, as a consequence, suspended by the the match review committee. But you know, I, it's a split second thing for mine, and I I don't think, and and in part, if we're saying there's a deal of cynicism there, we're sort of also ascribing some intent on the part of Cooper Cronk. And if you're starting to sort of say, well, we're go- I'm going to judge the intent or what I think is the intent of the defender, uh, I just don't think you- that's a bit of a slippery slope for mine. I just think you've got to judge on what you see. And I think I thought he got there literally a split second too quickly. Um, I don't think he, in- uh, you know, I don't think he intended to give away a cynical professional foul. Um, we'll never know, of course, but. For mine, it was too close a call for that to be an obvious invent. Yeah, and I'll fly the flag, the white flag, the surrender flag, because keen listeners will know I'm being a bit hypocritical here. I was pleading for leniency when it came to players arriving late into a tackle and being heavily punished, I was saying, you can't pull out. We can't have that situation. Here I am saying that he deserved to be sin-binned for getting there too early <laughs> to the tackle. It was just my feel at the time. And it's just, I thought he had to go. If we're going to be consistent, he's going to go. So there you go. Yeah. There's the difficulty for the game right there, summed up 
mm-hmm. in those two incidents that we've debated as the season's gone on. It'll be fascinating next year, quite obviously, won't it, when we start the season to see how it plays out in the first five or six weeks of the 2020 NRL season to see how situations like that are judged. Um, do the, does that sort of, you know, set a new mark? Um, how how are we going to go travelling forward? Because we will see if, if that is the, that is the new standard, then we will see a lot more sin bins. There's no question about that. And And maybe this has been suggested in the past, but in situations like that, if there are two or three penalties you know, in a row in your own line, it's either the sin bin or perhaps a defender um, sits the next set of six out. Was So you just, you, you just go behind the dead ball line, you're able to join play once you regain possession, and maybe that is two or three sets, but the, the opposition has that one-man advantage mm. for whatever they have the ball for the next one, two, however many sets it might be. While we're talking about seeing what happens over summer in terms of modifying the game, what about the summer nights for Ricky Stewart? Is he going to be waking up at 3am on a balmy uh, Canberra morning hearing six again? No, last play, last play, <laughs> last play. It was the moment of the grand final that received most traction on social media and uh, is still being spoken about days after the grand final and will be, will be for years to come, like it or not. Yeah, and, and I guess you know, going forward, how do we how do we solve that issue? That that we have, because we have two referees, we have done now for a decade or more. Um, how do we avoid that situation? Because I think we've seen, you know, creeping in, and it's it's a factor of uh, you know having the the safety net of the video referees and having in tight situations, in try scoring situations, or not even in try scoring situations, maybe just a change of possession on a, a kick into the end goal. We send it to the video referee as a, a situation where, you know, oh, look, I'm, I'm going to say no try. I know it's no, obviously no try, but I just want to sort of have a sneaky check of who touched that ball last. So we've had these safety nets sort of built into the game now for some time and no doubt that, that sort of overtime doesn't, you know, maybe it does erode the confidence of the referees to make on-the-spot calls, but it certainly affects... I think their decision making at times, and we've spoken about this in the past. I think it, for mine, I think if you're you are the say in control referee now, I know if you're going to have two referees, you might as well use two sets of eyes. But I think in situations where either continuing or stopping a set of six or certain situations, it's black and white. Only the man who is the control referee can make that decision, uh, because because as we know. Um, that decision changes what happens immediately with the very next pass or the next action by the team who ends up with possession, whether it's six again or last tackle, obviously changes the way they play that last play. And, and I, I suggested on, on Twitter yesterday, like I said, give me a crystal ball, basically, and give me the what happens next. If, if, that, if the Raiders know that is still just the last tackle, what happens from there? And, and obviously you get a whole range of responses. And it's amazing how many people think, oh, the Raiders, if they don't score on that play, they score off that next set. And we've just said, said the Roosters only conceded one try basically for five, now six games straight over the last couple of final series. So, I, you know, I just sort of think if we're going to give the, the main referee the job of looking after certain situations, that's one of them. He and, and only he, because it's time critical, you haven't got time there for a conference between the two referees. Only the man who's in charge at that point in time can make a call of yes, six again or no, 
that's the last tackle. And once he makes his call, you stick with it. If he's stuck with the original ruling of six to go, I see it as the lesser of two evils. Having watched the replay number of times, I'm still not 100% convinced it didn't touch James Tedesco. And if the Raiders do go on to score, let's say the best possible outcome for the Green Machine is that they, they come up with a dropout or a try or, or, or something like that. Are we really crucifying the referee for signalling six again? I, when he changed the decision, that's where it became a real problem in my eyes. It's not a problem for the Roosters. And if you believe that the Raiders were the ones to touch the ball, not James Tedesco, and it's actually the right call, then, you know, it, it's not the lesser of two evils changing your mind. But for me, it is, because I'm not convinced that Tedesco didn't touch it. And once the referee makes a ruling, I'm old school. I want him to stick with it, except you Go back to that Vunavalu situation where in the first or second week of finals, he didn't touch the sideline and the world's crawling, calling out for the, the out-of-play ruling to be overturned. So, you know, where do we sit with all this? How do we get some situations overruled and others not? Yeah, well, and that's right. And, and because, you know, a six-again call, there's no stoppage. We can't, you know, blow no. time off and say, let's just check that to see whether the ball came off James Tedesco or was it just off Bailey Simonson. Um, it's time critical and, you know, who's to say that, you know, if it, they realise it is the last tackle still. And I, I I think there were a couple of writers who knew it was the last tackle. They, perhaps they heard because Emre Gula pops a ball out the back, which if he thought it was six again, I don't think he pops that ball out the back. I think he takes the tackle and they go from there. But having said that, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. I think if I think if Jack White knows it's the last tackle, this is what his my crystal ball. I think he probably either puts a kick in out to the right hand side, where there would have been a surplus of Raiders and a lack of Roosters because Luke Keary was in there involved in that melee um, on the what is the Roosters right hand side. Well, he defends on the left edge, and I'm pretty sure um, Daniel Tupo was a long way infield as well having tracked back to try and support on the kick. So there was a chance for the Raiders to move the ball right. And as we know, the most dangerous kick in rugby league can often be the second kick on the one play. If he puts a kick in out there, there's a there's a pretty good chance the Raiders come up with a result. At, if, it, you know, if not a try, they keep the ball potentially and they go from there against a disjointed Roosters line. So you know, it, it is a big call. There's no getting around it. It was a massive call, but again... Having had that call go against them, it wasn't terminal. The game was eight all. There's nine minutes to play, and the opposition has the ball on their 10-metre line. It's a really tough situation to be in, but it wasn't the end of the game. Uh, the end of the game came perhaps in the next set of six, but there was still time after that for the Raiders to come down the field and have at least a couple of shots before full time. So you've got, you've, you haven't got the call you wanted, but it's still eight all. It's not like a call where, you know, a touch to you misses a forward pass and they can't call it back and the Roosters score off a forward pass. It wasn't that, you know, that would have been the howler of howlers. It's still it's still a tied game. You've got the opposition pinned on their own 10, having just used up plenty of gas defensively. And you come up with, again, um, the Raiders, a defensive lapse with nobody at marker when Luke Keary jumps out from dummy half to set Mitchell and Tupo away down their left-hand side. So it's a tough call. We'd obviously prefer it didn't happen. And it, it does change the flow of the game there. Does it change the result? I guess the answer is we will never know. 
No, we won't. I thought both coaches handled it really well after the game. I liked the way that Trent Robinson almost took offence to people talking about that issue when his team had defended so resolutely and and fought so hard to achieve something that hadn't been done for 26 years. I liked the fact that he was saying, hang on, what about my team's performance? What about what they achieved? And I respected what Ricky Stewart did, biting his tongue and knowing full well that the social media world was looking after what Ricky would have been tempted to look after. Uh, There was nothing he was going to say that was going to change the grand final or gain too much for the Raiders. So he took the high road and, and as difficult as that has been at times for Ricky, I thought he handled it really well. And at the end of the day, the Premiers were and always will be the Roosters to the tune of 14 points to wait. Into the crystal ball was 2020. Are the Roosters grand finalists again? Well, you no, know. no Cooper Cronk, but the legacy <laughs> will remain. Young Kyle Flanagan will work with Cooper Cronk as the uh, – Roosters halfback. It will be a relatively settled side, you'd imagine. And um, why can't they be there again? Exactly. Why? Why can't they? Um, what a situation to be joining a club as a young halfback, and you know they're the two-time defending premiers with all the stars around them. I guess before that, before we even get to that point, um, here we are in the early days of October, on November one, teams can uh, approach and negotiate with. Roosters players who are coming off contract at the end of the 2020 season. And those players include Joey Manu, Latrell Mitchell, uh, Siwa Taukeaho, uh, Nat Butcher. You've got the veterans, Brett Morris and Mitch Orbison. Now, Mitch Orbison's just re-signed for one more year, and that will see him out, you would imagine. I don't imagine that he's uh, continuing on his career. He's desperate to be a one-club man, gets that chance to crack the 300-game mark next year with the Roosters, barring injury, of course, and form. But you know, Manu Mitchell, Taukeaho, and Nat Butcher, who was a, a vastly improved back rower, really getting a solid game time now for the Roosters off the bench and potentially down the track if he stays with the club, becomes a starting uh, back rower as well, but um, or a middle forward. But Manu Mitchell and Taukeaho, they will be they will be keenly sought after. So while they would all be around, you'd imagine, next year. Um, maybe the window at some point begins to close on the Roosters, but they've got such a good record under Trent Robinson and a way of replenishing this team that, a bit like Melbourne, that, you know, maybe this is only the, we're only a couple of years into a, an era where they are there or thereabouts like Melbourne for a long, long time to come, another five, six, seven seasons. Who knows? Um, fascinating Fascinating 2020 season coming up already, isn't it, when you look down the track and see what may or may not be. But if the Roosters aren't in the top four again, like if they were to slip out of the top four in 2020, you'd say that's a, a massive drop back for them. And it might be, you know, motivation might be hard. That's hard to, 26 seasons since any team went back to back, maybe for one of the reasons is that like it's really hard to climb that mountain again to get yourself up off the back of having climbed the mountain they just, you know, done the second peak. Now they've got to go to peak three. They're doing the, a climb through the Himalayas, aren't they, doing the seven tallest mountains in the world? Maybe maybe they've got their crampons on. They can climb all seven mountains. Who knows? And the Raiders, well, they nearly reached the peak. And I like what Nathan Brown said on the final NRL 360 about how he sees even more development in the Raiders, mentioning the bench of Emre Gula and Horsebro off the, the bench to have a real 
impact. And you've got George Williams coming. Uh, again, Nathan Brown knows him very well and says that while he might take a few weeks to settle, maybe a couple of months to settle, that the Raiders will be better off with Williams at the scrum base, adding to their English contingent. Uh, they've added a real hard edge. They've added uh, defensive clout. They've added belief. And you look across the team with what Nickel Klockstad has done at the back, Whiten at 5'8", Papali back-to-back now three-time Meninga medalist. They have all the pieces to challenge again next year and, and, and you wouldn't be surprised if they're going one further next year and winning a grand final. No, and we were saying, I think, earlier in the season when we did our mid-season report in regards to the Raiders that you know maybe a, a title push in 2019 might be just one season too early. Well, they uh, disproved that theory by making it to the grand final and, and, and really pushing to the roosters to the wire. And obviously in their, their supporters' eyes, they were doing they were pretty unlucky given the, the calls that went against them. But you're right, you've, you've named plenty of reasons there exactly why they will be a factor again in 2020. And again, a, a slide back down the ladder to maybe the bottom half of the top eight would be a real surprise. Um, they have the look of a, a team on the, on the rise as opposed to going the other way. And uh, George Williams will be a fascinating change because um, Sam Williams was the starting halfback for much of the first half of the season, having taken over the job from Aidan Caesar, who regained that role. Uh, for the second half of the season and then through the finals, obviously. But George Williams isn't coming out here to play for the you know, Mount Pritchard Mounties. He's coming out to play NRL for the Canberra Raiders. And we'll see him. We've seen him a little bit in the past as far as in Australia. He's played for Wigan out here uh, early last season in a preseason game against the Rabbitohs. Uh, we can see him most weeks on the coverage of the UK Super League. Uh, we'll see him in the World Nines. He's been named in the... Uh, England World Nines team to be played at Bankwest, which we're covering live and exclusive on Fox League next week. So I'm um, going to be plenty of keen Raiders fans that'll be watching those uh, England games in the Nines. And I know it's only the Nines, but I'll be making some opinions on what sort of mover he is, what sort of skills he brings to the table to the Raiders next year. When it comes to 2020, was I'll just give you a few teams that I'm really interested to see how they will fare. Uh, Brisbane, is there a quick fix? Do they sign Brody Croft? Will he play halfback and do enough to lift the Broncos out of the mire? They made the top eight, but really they fell into the top eight and were embarrassed once they reached there. So is there any light at the end of the tunnel for Brisbane, Canterbury? Can they continue to improve? Such a strong end to the season, some really good signs, a measured rebuild, Dean Pay and the management there, I think. Uh, uh, doing the right things and building nicely. Such a, a, a big support base in Sydney who had to be patient for so long. Can they continue to improve and maybe crack the top eight? And then down the bottom, St George Illawarra, uh, remembering that the Jack DeBellin case is slated for early in the new year. Plenty of pressure on Paul McGregor and crucial eight weeks for them to start the season. So th- there's three clubs that I'm really keen to watch over the first month to eight weeks of the 2020 season. What That could well decide what sort of 2020 campaign they're going to have and what sort of future their coaches at those clubs are going to have, perhaps. Yeah, if the Dragons can put the Bellin thing you know, out of their minds and we'll see what sort of impact that plays early in their season, it, it, I have no doubt it played a big role in crueling their campaign in, in 2019. Um, if there was to be a, somebody who jumps up dramatically from the bottom of the table, you would say it is St. George at Awara because they were massive underachievers undoubtedly this season. Um, they could um, yeah, make a big improvement. The Broncos, 
Uh, given the, the young talent they have, but boy, they're missing some some key players, aren't they? In in their spine, in particular, and if Brody Croft can and do a job for them, it, it, it ends up signing there for the first part. Uh, I, I really like Brody Croft. I think he's a good player, and I just for whatever reason, and Craig Bellamy, quite obviously, for you know big parts of the past few seasons, has thought that Brody Croft, off the back of Cooper Cronk going to the Roosters, was a really good player as well, but. It's hard to get a gauge on as to what exactly they're not happy with with Brody Croft in Melbourne. What what part of his play, or is it something you know away? The does he gel with the the leaders of the team? Is he just is he just you know can't mix? I'm not sure what it is, but there's something that isn't quite right in their eyes, and they second guess themselves again at the back end of the season. And I think it has to be said, you know, Melbourne two chances in the last like the. Ran into a really hot rooster side, quite obviously, last year, and maybe nobody was going to beat them in the grand final the way they played in, in 2018. But there's there's a grand final and a prelim final, back-to-back years for the Melbourne Storm, off the back of having won the premiership in 2017. And if you think the Raiders fans are second-guessing themselves and doing a bit of soul-searching and Ricky Stewart, boy, Craig Bellaby and the Melbourne Storm will be going, well, you know, this, we could be talking about us next year going for a four-peat. They get a three-peat. They, they were a massive chance to win three premierships in a row, Melbourne. They've come up with one out of the three. And and part of the reason, part, part of the, you can't go past the fact that they just, when it came to the crunch, they couldn't settle themselves on who was their best number seven. And they made the change late, and I've got no doubt, I think it hurt them late. I think if they're a more settled side and, and you know, Jer- Jerome Hughes is a runner of the ball, not a, not a, I don't think he's an organising halfback. Cameron Munster is quite obviously a runner of the ball. They were really missing a Cooper Cronk type player, weren't they? Indeed, indeed. And uh, they turned to 2020, and we turned to a fortnight away because Was will both be involved in the World Nines. You've already touched on it. Uh, good to know that the league keeps coming. And I want to paint a scenario for you, Was. You're on your defensive line. It's uh, Friday and Saturday week. Who knows? Temperature hovering around 30 degrees, perhaps. And you're defending your line against the Australian Nines team of Josh Adokar, Jai Arrow, AJ Brimson, Nathan Brown, Kyle Felt, Tyson Frizzell, Ruben Garrick, Wade Graham, Clint Gutherson, Ben Hunt, Mitchell Moses. Now it gets scary. Ryan Pappenhausen, Kalen Ponga, Curtis Scott, Cody Walker. There is some speed and excitement in the green and gold team. I wouldn't like to be defending my line on a hot, hot Sydney afternoon. That is unbelievable, isn't it? Addo Carr, um, Brimson, Pappenhausen, Ponga, Scott, Cody Walker, AJ Brimson, <laughs> uh, playing off the back of you know Mitchell Moses and Ben Hunt, uh, somewhere around the middle of the field. Uh, yeah, it'll be good. I, I can't wait. Now Fiji, the team I've been waiting for for the last couple of weeks to name their team for the Nines is Fiji. Because Absolutely. all we've spoken about for the past three to five seasons are the Fijian Flyers, how many of them are, how big and strong and quick athletic they are. Um, they could have one hell of a nines team, but you need a bit of go forward. Quite obviously, it's not all about just speed because I know it's nine aside, but you need a bit of starch in the middle still to set a platform no matter how many people are on the field. But, boy, I... I can't wait to see. I'm, I'm salivating at the prospect of seeing who makes that that Fijian team and what sort of uh, shape it looks like. I guess the story for them is who who is the the straw that stirs the drink and plays halfback and decides whether they're going left or right and steering them around the paddock. But um, fascinating. You know, 
nines in that situation in the past with the club teams sending their sending their you know second or third string teams to Auckland. It lost a bit of luster, quite obviously. Um, the stars weren't there in the main. There were a couple of cameos here and there by the big names, but we didn't see the best players over there quite regularly. But in this situation, internationals, we are going to see some really, really good football teams. I think it'll be fantastic, and I think it'll be a, you know, a real surprise hit off the back of the NRL season. I can't wait to get out there. I had a chuckle when the teams dropped yesterday, and I went through the England team. I just don't know how delighted James Graham might have been to receive the phone call that you're going to play in the nines because, you know, he's well past 30, 33 years of age, front row forward. You know, those legs have more than 400 first-grade games of experience and wear and tear on them, and he's got to line up in a game of nines where there are speedsters darting left, right and centre, and Jimmy Graham, Jammer's going to find himself right slap bang in the middle of it. Well, he's the second halfback because <laughs> George Williams is probably the starting halfback um, alongside Gareth Widdop. Uh, but then James, when George Williams or Gareth get a break in nines, and boy, it's held a skelter, so that you, you know, get out there for three or four minutes and come off and catch your breath again. Um, but James Graham, he's the second halfback. He'll be out there just at first receiver saying, this is what we're doing. I'll guarantee you'll be putting kicks in over the top. He'll be doing the lot. He'll love it. He, he, he will love it, with a C next to his name as well. And just ducking back a, a chapter, you wondered who might be the uh, stirrer, the halfback for Fiji. What about Brandon Wakeham, the Bulldogs uh, halfback who burst onto the NRL scene late? He played for Fiji uh, during the international games earlier in the season. I thought he did really well, so he's more than capable of unleashing the beasts who will exist on both sides of him. Yeah, oh, boy. You know, that team in prospect... Um, as I said, is mouth-watering. So, yeah, come on, Fiji. Uh, name your team so we can get really excited about what you're going to bring to the table out there at Bankwest Stadium. We will be glad, was that we are involved with the broadcasting and not the tackling of the Fijian lineup, as we've often touched on. Now, the tests. Oh, wow. The tests come our way with the Kangaroos to play New Zealand in beautiful God's country, Wollongong, um, and then Tonga. Now, the six debutants for the Kangaroos, Nick Kotrick, Josh Adokar, Cam Murray, Payne Haas, Jack White and Paul Vaughan. I don't think you'd argue with any of them, although I have heard a few people say, what's Paul Vaughan doing there? Well, I love his selection. I have him as one of the Dragons' better players over the last two seasons. I thought he's aimed up at origin level. I think he's earned his call-up and the other five, will they speak for themselves? Yeah, and it's interesting that normally when we have, you know, Kangaroo squad named off the back of the grand final, that you have some players who have come through the, the finals and, and, you know, maybe shooting stars have just come from nowhere, or not nowhere, but they've made leaps and bounds and didn't play in the Origin Series, but they just threw their form and, and helping play their role with their team going deep into the into the finals um, that they forced their way into the Australian team. But that isn't the case this time around because pretty much everybody played in the Origin Series. It was only really Luke Keary who was out with that concussion who didn't play a role um, for either New South Wales or, or Queensland. So the team is fairly well established, isn't it? Jack Whiten um, gets a chance off the back of his Dallium, uh, rather his uh, Clive Churchill medal win in the grand final. Um, he was terrific for Canberra, boy. Um, scored their only try, but his defence in particular, boy, if you talk about the Fijians being quick and strong and powerful, Jack Whiten, he might be the Canberra Fijian because he is, uh, he is in great form and, He'll be terrific. It'll be great to see him play. And he'll, he'll play in the centres because it's basically him and Mitchell who are the centres by the looks of things uh, for 
for Australia. And, and funnily enough, Latrell Mitchell, speaking of origin, like plays game one. Um, the Blues hierarchy weren't happy uh, with what he offered there, perhaps mostly in defence, I think. Um, but here he is, um, winning a premiership winner once again. Mal Meninga's got no hesitation throwing him into the Australian team alongside with Jack Whiten, who'll play on the other side of the field. I had a chat with Glenn Lama this morning and uh, he painted a picture that had a very impressive New Zealand team being named in coming days as well, behind Jared Waria Hargreaves, who not so long ago couldn't crack the New Zealand team. Well, try leaving him out this year was because uh, I was watching the stats, his numbers over the first 15 minutes of the grand final, and I think it was just over 15 minutes. He had 70 run metres up, uh, and, and that was the platform on which you know, the Roosters used to go to the front. And, and he'll be there and behind him and, and you know, Ken Mulmala out wide who scored freely this season. The, the, the New Zealand team is going to be a good one as well. Yeah, uh, it will be. And Jared Warrior Hargreaves is a great story because, as you said, um, just fell out of favour with the New Zealand uh, administration for quite a number of seasons there. Couldn't get a game. And, um, you know, in some ways his, his NRL form wasn't quite as it was when he was playing um, test football there for a couple of years. But over the past few seasons, boy, he has been one of the dominant front rowers in the NRL. And he played all five tests for the Kiwis last season uh, in the postseason games and then obviously in the, the tour to the UK in October and November as well. Um, he, I'm guessing, you know, if he wasn't the first player picked for New Zealand, he was in the top two or three. Um, uh, great to see Jared. Uh, he's a real character and a terrific fella off the field as well. He's an enforcer on the field and, um, yeah, there's no love lost when he's out there between the lines. But, boy, uh, he's a, a lovable, um, outgoing, uh, caring fella off the field as well and it's great to see him have some success uh, at the NRL level and also back with the, the New Zealand Test team. Who would have got W Smith's Clive Churchill medal just out of interest? Well, I've got to tell you, if it wasn't Jack Whiten, who I can't, I, I have no qualms with Jack Whiten being named the the Jack uh, the uh, the Clive Churchill medal, even though he's on the losing team. That doesn't really mean much in a, a tight grand final like that. But you know, I could have made a case for Brett Morris, yep. honestly, being the Clive Churchill medalist. I thought he was unbelievable under the pressure that the Raiders put him under, and Aiden Caesar just had those pinpoint kicks coming down a meter or two out from the line, and any mistake from Brett Morris in those situations. Could have led to a try quite easily for Canberra, but he just kept gobbling them up, and sometimes they'd knock him back into the end goal for a goal line dropout, or he'd just fight and fight and be, be in the field of play by half a metre. I thought I thought it was one of the great wingers' performances in a grand final I've seen for a long, long time. And again, most of it came in the area of defence, and, and that's how they won the competition for the second time around with the Roosters with their defences we've spoken about. And that was, um, yeah, shown to great effect by Brett Morris. Uh, I could have also given it to Jared Warrior Hargreaves. I could have given it to Vic Radley. I thought Vic Radley was such a pivotal um, player in that win on Sunday night against the Raiders. I just thought he was, uh, with his carries of the ball in tough situations and then his defence, he would make two or three tackles in a row at times. Uh, I, you know, I'm a massive Vic Radley fan, and I thought if if they named him as the Clive Churchill medalist, I'd have said that is truly well-deserved. 
Well, it's just a quick mention of the two lower-grade grand finals. I was lucky enough to call the NRLW, where Brisbane went back-to-back. Uh, my expectations were that St George Illawarra had found their form, they'd found their rhythm, their mojo, that they would beat Brisbane on grand final day. But uh, even though they had the athletes out wide in Sergis and Penetani, it's no use having them there if you don't have enough ball or enough field position. And Millie Boyle, along with Amber Hall and... Uh, Rona Peters, the middle forwards for Brisbane, were fantastic in the grand final. They've been rewarded with Gillaroo's selection, the three of them. They were outstanding down the middle for um, Brisbane. And it just reminds you of that old cliche that unless you're forward, get on front, you can't win a game, let alone a grand final. And that was proven to be the case. And earlier, Newtown, the mighty blue bags, an amazing <laughs> finish. And was, I'll tell you a story, I was in the commentary box as... Vossi fired up alongside Brett Finch and, and Justin Hodges. And with the last few seconds about to unfold, I thought, I'll just capture this on my phone and who knows what might happen. And I uh, videoed on my phone the Billy Magulius chip and the take and the remarkable try to win it for Newtown through, with the three men in front of me calling the action, jumping around out of their seats, slapping each other on the back, et cetera, et cetera. You know what it's like in a commentary box in that situation. And it's on the Fox League Facebook page, I believe, uh, that vision. So it's a different oh, angle. Sensational. It's a different angle of that most remarkable finish. And well done, Newtown, over what, what must be a forlorn Burley team this week because they had it there, they had it there, and then it wasn't there anymore. I mean, that will live um, for a long time in Newtown folklore, quite obviously, maybe forever. But had that been played out, that scenario played out in the NRL, uh, it would eclipse everything, given that the exact, almost the exact same play happened for them to win the game in the Canterbury Cup the week before That's to right. make it to the, the Interstate Super Bowl. and To the to point win. it was even Billy Magulius a week earlier. Oh, same play just, from the same bloke. As ridiculous a situation <laughs> as you can get. And I was sitting at, at home just cooling the Jets, waiting to uh, get out there to call the game. And that was just ridiculous. I mean, seriously, to, to think almost the exact same situation play out in the exact same scenario two weeks in a row to win the game at the death. Take me now, I've seen it all. Well, save that was because I'm going to get your final wrap-up on season 2019 in a moment. A reminder, throughout the NRL finals, this podcast has been brought to you by Maccas. You can download the Monopoly game and play on the app to win any number of fantastic prizes, as Waz's children have already done, now logging on to websites around the world to catch up with all their entertainment news. Waz, final thoughts, 2019. Well, um, the, uh, the aftermath uh, of the grand final has been all about refereeing, quite obviously. It was an issue, uh, again, during the season. But honestly, if we go back through every season, um, grand finals haven't always been touched by refereeing controversies, but there certainly have been. If you go back to the 1989 grand final, the Raiders' very first win. And, a, a contra- and if this call had played out in, in the age of social media, it would eclipse the six-again call by by some stretch, Billy Harrigan uh, penalises the Balmain Tigers. Bruce Maguire takes a, a run off a penalty, uses a Canberra Raiders player as potentially or supposedly a shepherd, and Harrigan says you can't do that and penalises Balmain, turns over possession and gives it to the Canberra Raiders in a game that went, as we know, to extra time. 
had that scenario played out on Sunday night, well, we'd still be talking about it on social media and all other avenues. Um, so we've had we've had dramas in grand finals in the past. There are others, of course, in 1996, uh, the Sea Eagles and Matthew Ridge. You can go back, you know, even further to the 50s and the 60s, Darcy Lawler, and we know all the stories. Um, it, unfortunately, you know, refereeing to the end has been a story again throughout the season, but that that is the way of sport in the world that we now live in. I'm checking different websites and uh, looking around the news this morning. There's drama in the English Premier League about the introduction of technology and the VAR and ruling on offsides and, and players being offside by 10 centimetres and things like that. Um, every sport at the moment, I was watching some NFL yesterday morning before we headed north and there was drama again. The refereeing in the, in the NFL games I watched, every game now, Everybody has an opinion. There are always going to be calls that are really obvious calls to make. But then there's, there, there are those calls which are in the grey zone and um, and they're the tough ones and people are going to have a difference of opinion and there's always going to be controversy now that we can watch everything from 83 different angles. We can slow it down. We can zoom in. We can have 3D modelling of it now with via Hawkeye. Um, the world has changed and unfortunately um, you know, we were touched by a bit of controversy in the grand final but if there's no answer, we're not going to go into 2020 and find the, the magic bullet that's going to solve all these refereeing issues. It's just a factor of life that we have humans in charge of games. Um, they're going to make human mistakes at times. Uh, and one of those um, happened in the game um, yeah, on Sunday night. So that that is the, you know, in the, in the hours and days after the game, that is what stays with you, I guess, and with a lot of people for some time. But when I think back you know, to a great season of footy, um, I think back to George Tafua, absolutely levelling players with his unbelievable defence coming off the wing. I think of Mitchell Moses and his ridiculous kicking skills at times, setting up try after try for the Parramatta Eels and Mike Acevo being on the end of many of those. Um, yeah, the skills of a variety of players. I think of you know Cooper Cronk. We haven't really mentioned Cooper Cronk in this whole podcast, but there he is, retiring, having just won three grand finals in a row. And as Trent Robinson said, in the hours after the game or in the post-game media conference, he said he's not the most skillful player you've ever seen. And I think that's probably always been, you know, maybe known of Cooper Cronk, although his kicking game, I tell you, is is up there with, you know, Ricky Stewart and others who've had outstanding kicking games over the, the decades of play at this level of the game. Um, but he said, you know, I've got a – Trent Robinson said, I've got a bit of left or right pass than Cooper Cronk. But that's not what makes him great. The, he just brings so much to the table. And he said at the start of – it. it when he got through the grand final last year, Trent Robinson said of Cooper Cronk, I've never seen a guy as mentally strong as him. And then before round one, having just come back from winning the World Club Challenge in the UK, he said of Cooper Cronk before round one, he's the smartest footy player I've coached. And he said it again after the grand final. He's learnt so much from having Cooper Cronk as a player under him over the past couple of years. He said he's the, he's the greatest thinker of rugby league that he's come across. And that's a fair rap from a bloke who's just won three premierships as a coach in his first seven seasons in the NRL. So they are the things, the controversy, it's there for the moment, but it will die away. And then, you know, there'll be more controversy next year. and We'll twist ourselves in knots trying to work out how we, we solve the issues and be all things to all people in regards to officiating. But the thing that stays with you is the players and what they do between the lines for the 80 minutes of game time each week. Uh, we are very lucky and very privileged to have a, a great seat sitting there calling it each week. And um, all, all those great pieces of play 
uh, what we'll be talking about down the track. I know this what happened on Sunday night will get mentioned, but it will be it'll be a footnote. We'll be talking about the great Roosters team who went back to back. Movie world, sea world, dream world, or beer world? Was where are you off to today? <laughs> uh, beach world, <laughs> beach world. Enjoy <laughs> the break, warm and... Thanks, mate. And we'll hear and, you uh, back for yeah, the, and... the World Nines. Yes, and we'll, I'll see you out there at Banquet Stadium next week. And uh, I think we might uh, keep the podcast going for a little while. Hey, we might have a few chats uh, in the weeks ahead. We'll, um, maybe not next Monday, but off the back or maybe leading up to the, the World Nines, we might do a little preview and then uh, a bit of a review off the back of it and then maybe a bit of chat about the test matches uh, in yeah. the weeks beyond that. Let's do that. Lara will be fit and well in no time at all. Uh, I'm Matt Russell and was over to you for the final say. What's the name of this podcast again? It is You Can Take Me Now. I have said it all. Thanks, everybody, for, uh, for listening in during the course of the season. And big thanks, of course, to our producer, Phil, Phil Pryor. An outstanding job. Phil, thanks for your work. We'll see you in the weeks ahead. Thanks, boys. For the final time in 2019, we think this is the You Can Take Me Now, I Have Seen It All podcast. I am Mutt Mutt Russell. Let's go again. (laughs) Mutt Russell. Good start. Over to you, Was. You hosted. That's good. Mutt Russell. Uh, I love it. I've been, I I've it. been M- M- Matt Rumble before too. I was going to say Matt, Matt Russell. <laughs> uh, can I put that on the outtakes though? Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, good. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> we, don't do, we don't have any outtakes. I know, uh, I know. Yeah, it's done. normally one and done. All right, take two.